You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello and welcome in to another episode of Theology for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Kenny Ortiz, coming at you from the beautiful metropolis of Orlando, Florida, deep in the heart of the land of Mickey Mouse. That's right, Central Florida. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes out to listen to this episode of the podcast. I've been off for uh, oh, more than a week or so. I've just been busy in life for the last you know, week and a half. haven't been able to uh, produce a new episode. And so apologize to all my regular listeners. I, I heard from some of you by Twitter and email asking, you know, had the podcast gone away? Uh, no, it has not gone away. I've just been busy and back at it. So glad to be back with you. This is episode 152, and I'm going to be answering the question, did Jesus have any children, or what about the bloodline of Jesus? Great question that is worthy of a good answer, and I'm going to be uh, dialoguing about uh, a book, famous but relatively famous book called The Da Vinci Code, and whether or not it has any historical merit. I'm also going to point out a logical fallacy that I think a lot of people often use when arguing uh, for different things when they're trying to, you know, attack the Bible or when they're trying to undermine the credibility of the gospel accounts. There is a logical fallacy, I think, is often used when people are trying to, you know, attack the Bible in some way that I want to expose and dialogue about. I think it'll be important. So excited for this episode. Before we dive into the meat of the content. Uh, quick reminder to everyone, those of you who've been listening a while have heard me talk about this, but if you don't know, I have another podcast. It's called the Student Ministry Podcast. Uh, obviously, you can tell by the name, it's designed by, for people who are in student ministry. And so if you or someone you know is looking to invest in the lives of uh, middle school, high school, college students, highly encourage you to check that out. The easiest way to find it is at studentministrypodcast.com. Also, one other quick item before we dive into the content. I want to ask everyone for a huge favor. If you haven't done this already, would you be willing to leave a review? I know many of you have already done this. Thank you so much. If you have not and you're willing, head on over to whatever podcast app you're familiar with. In particular, if you're an iTunes user, head on over, leave a five-star rating, tell the world that you love the podcast. Uh, reviews are a big, big help to the show. Uh, the more reviews we have, in essence, the more people will be able to find us. So good reviews equals the show reaching more people. Uh, it's a really simple way for you to support the show and help me out. So leave a review. That would be awesome. Thank you so much. All right, let's answer the question. Did Jesus ever have any kids? Did he have children? The answer is no. It's a resounding no. It's clearly no. Jesus was never married. Jesus never had any kids. Listen, if he had had children, it, will, it would most certainly have been mentioned in the Gospels. And the Gospels never mention it, right? The Gospels are the authentic accounts of the life of Jesus. I talked extensively about the authenticity, uh, particularly of the New Testament in episodes 144 and 145. You can go back and check that out. Uh, but the, but those Gospels accounts never mention uh, you know, any marriage or, or children of Jesus. And, and this is this is way too important to have left out. Like the Bible specifically mentions the marital status of Paul, Peter, and other church leaders. Uh, there are other writings from the early church that mention the marital status of some of the apostles and, and other church leaders, um, but none of them ever mention the, the the marital status of Jesus having been married to someone or having had 
any children. Like none of the epistles mention that whatsoever. Um, although they do make mentions of his siblings and other family members, none of the early church writings mention anything of it. Again, although those same writings often make mention to the marital status and family members of some of the apostles and other church leaders, um, and neither do any of the historical mentions of Jesus, whether that be Josephus or any of the other historians from the first and second century, none of them ever allude to Jesus, his bloodline, or his family. And it was common practice for many historians to indeed allude to the bloodline and who you know who the bloodline was or who were the heirs and where they ended up and where what region they ended up living in. You know, those are the types of things that would have been notable for for different historians. And we see none of that, you know, in regards to their mentionings of Jesus or any supposed, you know, kids he may he may have had. So again, there is no evidence whatsoever that Jesus was ever married or that he ever had kids. There's no mentioning of it. There's, it's never even alluded to anywhere in the gospel account. And again, this is too important uh, to have left out. However, there are some things that lead us to believe that he probably was not married and didn't have kids, right? He talks about uh, the Son of Man having no place to lay. Like Jesus, we believe for the most part, lived a life of relative poverty and didn't have a home. Um, Jewish custom would have expected a man with a wife and kids to to provide for his family. And so uh, th- there's there's no doubt that if Jesus did indeed have a wife and kids, that, that the culture he lived in would have expected to take care of him. People wouldn't have followed him if he was the guy who didn't have the means to take care of a family, even though he had kids. That, that wouldn't have happened. It's simply illogical to assume that Jesus was married with kids with no evidence whatsoever. Now, some people say, well, just because it wasn't mentioned doesn't mean it, that it's not possible. Well, I guess it's possible that he was married with kids and it was never mentioned. But it's also possible that Abraham Lincoln was a Martian, right, with three eyeballs. But it was just never mentioned in history books, right? I guess that's possible, too, even though it was never mentioned, right? Like, it's just silly to make these assumptions with no evidence whatsoever. Now, however, just because it's silly and illogical doesn't stop people from making these assumptions. Uh, and one of the recent phenomenons that kind of that kind of reinforced some of these silly assumptions uh, is this famous book called The Da Vinci Code. It was a novel and then a movie. I, I've never read the novel. I, I did see the movie. It was actually a relatively well-done movie, I thought. Um, uh, and so Dan Brown's the author of this fiction novel. And uh, in this book, he talks about, if you, haven't, if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, basically, he talks about uh, there's this cover-up at the Catholic Church. And at first, as the movie starts, you don't know what the cover-up actually is. And he talks about there's this there's this big secret that the Catholic Church has been trying to hide. Um, that you know, and if this secret became public, if people knew, then this uh, you know supposedly this uh, this secret could undo the Catholic Church. You know, all the power and influence the Catholic Church has would completely crumble. And you know, organized as religions we know it would crumble, and this you know the kind of the, the the brand of Christianity we know today is false, and people would see through it if they knew this secret. Like that's at least kind of the storyline, the premise. Um, and supposedly there's these secret societies that were created to uh, to protect something. As you go through the movie, you, you eventually find out. I'm going to spoil the end for you now. If you, if you haven't seen the movie, you had enough time. It came out like 12 years ago, um, but. Um, Basically, uh, the, the, the secret that the Catholic Church has been trying to, trying to eradicate or keep people from knowing is the secret that Jesus actually had a wife with children and that the Catholic Church doesn't want people to see this. And so that the, throughout the course of time, there was these secret societies created to protect the heirs of Jesus. And that supposedly there was this, uh, this, this secret society, these people called the Knights of Templar. And the Knights of Templar were the ones that were the, the secret society or tied to a variety of secret societies 
aimed at protecting the heirs of Jesus throughout the centuries, keeping them safe from the, you know, the murder of the Catholic Church, because if the Catholic Church knew who they were, they'd kill them all to ensure the world never found out that Jesus had kids, right? And supposedly there's these guys out to get these heirs. And that's the whole point of the movie. And you end up finding out that this main character in the movie all along was actually one of the heirs, one of the last living heirs of Jesus. Um, people have been trying to kill her. Also throughout the movie, you find out that supposedly uh, Leonardo da Vinci, the famous artist, was a member of one of these secret societies uh, that was, you know, protecting the the identity of the heirs of Jesus, you know, protecting them from the, you know, from danger of the Catholic Church. Um, and that he put all the clues as to who these people were in his paintings. Um, and that you don't know the clues are there unless you're a part of the secret society. You could read the clues in the painting. So that's at least the, the story. Um, is there any evidence for any of these things being potentially true that Dan Brown puts in his novel? Uh, the answer is no, there's not. It's a fiction story, right? We don't read novels as history books because they're not true. Um, there's zero evidence for any of this whatsoever. Now, I will tell you, there was a legitimate group of people called the Knights of Templar. That's actually a real group. They were a fighting force during the Crusades in the second or the in the 12th and 13th century. Like, think, just imagine yourself like the Navy SEALs fighting for the Catholic Church back in the 12th century. Like, that's pretty much who they were. They were this special fighting force that the Catholic Church put together to go fight the Muslims during the Crusades in the 12th and 13th century. At the end of the Crusades, they are disbanded. Um, we don't know why they were disbanded. Maybe because they felt that they no longer needed them. Maybe there was some sort of falling out. I don't know. But Dan Brown, in his novel, would lead you to believe that, the, that there wasn't actually a disbanding, but it was the Catholic Church who found out that the secret society was hiding the secret, and then the Catholic Church tried to take them out, and that's why the Knights of Templar became this, this secret society. Um, and so again, Dan Brown, in his really well-written, brilliant novel in a lot of ways, he uses elements of history and brings them in, and then says, well, there's actually a, this was actually an element of a cover-up. But again, is there any historical evidence that, that anything Dan Brown prefer, you know asserts to be is true? No, and I don't think Dan Brown's saying they're true. I don't I don't think so. I don't I mean I, I've never met the guy, I've never had a conversation with him, but I, I think he's writing a fiction novel for entertainment purposes, uh, not meaning to be historical in any way. I, at least that's my understanding. Um, and so what what are the historical evidences for this bloodline or not bloodline? Like, you know, what are the things that people maybe point to that are historical? There are a few things. Let me, let me point them out. And number one, there was a guy named Celsus. who's a Greek philosopher in the, in the late part of the second century. So he's living about 150 years after Jesus. He was a, a Greek philosopher, but he was really into Egyptian religion, ancient G Egyptian religion. And, um, and he also seemingly was very familiar with Jewish theology. So he was this Greek philosopher who embraced ancient Egyptian religion with elements of Judaism, really kind of weird. Um, and he really becomes later in his life an opponent of Christianity. So he writes a book attacking Christians. Again, this is a guy who is anti-Christianity, is writing a book about 150 years after Jesus. Now, we know that he wrote this book because this book has been talked about in other sources, but we've actually never recovered the book. Whatever he actually wrote, scholars have never found. Historians haven't been able to find it. But there was a guy named Origen in the later part of the second century, was a very famous Christian writer, a Christian apologist. He wrote a book responding to this guy Celsus, and his book was called Against Celsus, right? Very original title. Um, but Origen, in his book, is attacking uh, Celsus and kind of really defending the Christian faith against all of the things that Celsus says. Now, again, we don't know what Celsus says, and there's no evidence that Celsus claimed that G that Jesus was married. There's no evidence of that. 
But we do know that Origen is responding. And in Origen's response, Origen says, the charm of Jesus' words calls men to follow him into the wilderness and for women to forget the weakness of their sex and regard for outward propriety in thus following their teacher into the desert. Like, let me just make that simple. Basically, Origen is saying, Jesus' words were so charming. He was such a captivating communicator. He was such a great speaker that men were willing to follow him into the wilderness and that even women were willing to follow him into the desert places to go hear him teach, you know, when Jesus was teaching in kind of desert places, which women often didn't do because of the weakness of their sex. They didn't want to go too far from their homes. You know, maybe they were afraid to be intact or rape or something like that. Women also didn't, they, they were also looked down upon, so they didn't go out and they, they didn't do those sorts of things often because they would be looked down upon. And origin was saying that Jesus was so captivating, such a great teacher, that men would follow him into the wilderness, that even women would disregard the potential danger they put themselves in and how they would be looked down upon to go listen to him speak because he was such a great captivating speaker. That's what origin, that's the point origin is making. Now, we don't know what Celsus said to cause origin to respond in this way. Maybe Celsus said, um, you know, Jesus wasn't a good communicator. I don't know. Maybe Celsus said no one was willing to follow Jesus, right? And Origen's response is, look, no, he was such a great communicator. People followed him everywhere, right? Even women put themselves in danger, right? That's that's at least, that's what we know. Now, I don't think, by, by reading Origen's response, I don't think Celsus made any comments about the marital status of Jesus. I don't think so, at least, right? However, in the 1800s, right, just about 150 years ago, there were some some of the leaders and founders of the Mormon Church in the early in the mid 1800s claimed that Origen was responding to Celsus's complaint um, Celsus's claim that Jesus was polygamous right so this is what the Mormons are saying the Mormons come on the scene in the mid 1800s and they say hey Celsus claimed that Jesus was a polygamist and that's why Origen made that comment in response to Jesus's polygamy. And then the Mormon church actually condemned Origen and they said that Celsus was right. Jesus was a polygamist. Therefore, we can be polygamists too. And they started a new religion and they were all polygamists. The vast majority of all the founders and leaders of the Mormon church in the early 1800s were predominantly polygamists. Um, that's the most absurd, ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Like, let's be honest, right? Celsus makes a statement, Origen responds to him, and then 1,600, 1,700 years later, the Mormons use that interaction as the way to say that Jesus was a polygamist so that they can back up the fact that they could be polygamous. Well, the reality is this. The, those founders of the Mormon church there, they didn't have any historical evidence for that. They don't know what Celsus said. We don't know what Celsus said. But there's no evidence that he claimed that Jesus was a polygamist. But the Mormons wanted to be, the Mormon leaders at that time, wanted to be polygamous and they needed a way to figure out how they could back up their claims. And so they twisted history. They twisted this claim and they said, you see, Celsus believed Jesus was a polygamist. That means he was a, he was a polygamist. So the Mormons are basically basing their justification for polygamy, or they were in the 1800s, they were basing their uh, their justification for polygamy on an anti-Christian Greek philosopher in the second century. This is absolutely ridiculous. There is no evidence whatsoever that anyone in the ancient world believed that Jesus was a polygamist or that he was even married. And it wasn't until the 1800s that the Mormons fabricated that to justify their own sin. The second thing from history I think is important sometimes is, uh, is this 
Coptic fragment. In September of 2012, there was a fragment, a Coptic fragment called the Gospel of Jesus, or it's often referred to as the Gospel of Jesus' wife. It's this fragment that was supposedly from the fourth century where Jesus makes a reference to his wife. That was at least, and this made world world news. This was big news in different historical circles and scholarly circles. September of 2012, you can Google this, um, and there was this supposedly from the fourth century. And we find within a few months that it was a forgery, that it was actually made up. And the Wall Street Journal actually ran an article about this in 2014, the evidence that this fragment was actually made up after the fact. It wasn't historical evidence. Someone made it up. Um, funny, though, that the initial discovery, when they thought it was authentic, made world news. It was covered by a bunch of newspapers. And then once we find out it was a forgery, that actually was no evidence for it, that's never covered. Isn't that interesting how that works out? Um, number three, there was a documentary in 2008 uh, produced by a guy named Bruce Burgess called Bloodline. It was really a documentary inspired by the Da Vinci Code. Um, and again, this is 2008 documentaries produced by uh, Bruce Burgess. He produces this. He, he, has, an, he has this guy named uh, Ben Hammett, who is an archaeologist, and he's interviewing him in this documentary. And they're basically pr producing the evidence that Jesus did indeed have a family, just like the Da Vinci Code fiction novel claimed um, that Jesus, at the end of his life, actually traveled. He didn't die on a cross. That he traveled to what is now modern-day England or France, and he lived in that region of the world. Um, he, in this documentary, they prove supposedly evidences for the Knights of Templar being connected to these secret societies that were meant to protect these families that were the, the heirs of Jesus, the bloodline of Jesus, and they were, are keeping their identities secret, and that most of these families today live in, in France um, and in certain parts of England, and that they're being kept secret by these secret societies. So that was the document. They presented all, these, all this uh, supposed evidence. Well, within a few years, scholars start looking into these supposed evidence he produced, and they find out that it's pretty, mostly um, completely made up, and that basically this guy, uh, this guy Ben Hammett, actually wasn't a, actually he wasn't a uh, he wasn't a good archaeologist, and he actually eventually makes a public statement. In 2012, this archaeologist, Ben Hammett, eventually comes out and basically says, I made it all up. It was a lie. It's faulty evidence. He eventually gets caught and he makes a public statement. In fact, his public statement, his apology, is actually still on his website. You can still find it. I was actually shocked that it's still up. Um, I actually found it. I took screenshots of it in case they ever take it down. So I, I've got the evidence that it was on his website. Um, but this guy, Ben Hammett, was his archaeologist. And when the documentary comes out, it's it's you know, gets it makes world news. People are talking about it in scholarly circles. It, it's covered in a variety of American newspapers, and then eventually he makes the public statement that he made it all up, and it's barely covered. Isn't that interesting? That the evidence that would supposedly undermine the Bible is covered, but the evidence that proves that it's all fraudulent and lies doesn't get covered very much. But I'll have uh, I'll have a link to the screenshot uh, in the show notes uh, for you know for this episode on our website over at theologyfortherestofus.com. The fourth supposed element of history that proves that Jesus, uh, you know, was married comes from a writing from a, a 13th century French monk. Um, there's a French Catholic monk in the, you know, in the 13th century. Again, this is 1,200 years after Jesus, and he is talking about there's this group of people that he knows about that they believed that Mary Magdalene was Jesus's concubine. Now, remember, the French monk, monk himself is not claiming that he believed that. He was a Catholic monk. He was saying that there was this one small group, this weird religious order, this little religious cult 
that they existed in, you know, kind of what is now modern day northern Italy and modern day southern France. There was a, a small segment of supposed Christians that believed that Mary Magdalene was actually Jesus' concubine and that they likely had children. Um, but that group of people had no evidence for it and there's no documentation of it. They just believed it. Maybe they, we don't know why they believed it, right? But this French Catholic monk mentions them and says, I don't know where they got it from that they made this thing up. That was, again, he, again, he doesn't know where they came up with it, but he was just documenting their hypothesis. And what some people day, today go is, oh, you see, people believe that there must have been a cover-up. And the Catholic Church sent this French Catholic monk to write this letter saying those guys were a lie. Like, like, no, like, there are weird, weird religious groups today that believe weird things. If I produce a podcast talking about how they're false and have, they have no evidence, it's not because I'm a part of a cover-up. It's because I'm just acknowledging what's around me. Like, there's a one, this one random French Catholic monk in the 13th century notices this one weird group of religious people, and he's like, dude, they believe that Mary Magdalene was the concubine of Jesus, and they don't have any evidence for it. They just randomly made it up. Like, I don't know why they, where they got that from, right? That's, that's, that's what he's saying. That's not evidence of a cover-up. It's evidence of one dude observing one small weird group of people. Number five, there's this thing called the Jesus Scroll. Uh, in the early 70s, there was an Australian radio producer. He traveled to Israel, and he claimed that he wasn't allowed to look at the Masada excavations. I'll tell you what the Masada excavations are in just a second. Um, but it's important to remember, this guy was not a scholar, not a historian. He was a talk show host in Australia in the 70s. Like, just consider, like the host of NPR's This American Life, right? Or consider Rush Limbaugh, right? Or Howard Stern, okay? This guy was like that, a talk show host, a host of a show, a talk show host. He claims to go to Israel to check out this thing called the Masada Excavations. In the 70s, there was a an excavation, oh, excuse me, this was actually found in the 50s and 60s, there was an excavation of a region of a community called Masada, much like in episode 146, when I talked about the Qumran communities, how they were being excavated, that's where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls from, um, and so they were wiped out by the uh, by the Romans in the mid-60s, but the Masadans were, they lasted another decade beyond the Essenes. The Essenes were the ones living in the Qumran communities, they were there, the people living in Masada, in Masada they survived for 10 more years. The Romans eventually wiped them out in 75 AD. Um, and just like the people living in Qumran, the Masada and people living in the Masada, they, they hid a bunch of documents and scrolls in the caves um, and in different locations. And so we, they've been excavated. The Masada excavations found a bunch of these documents and scrolls and items from this community that was wiped out and destroyed by the Romans in 75 AD. So this Australian radio host uh, goes to Israel to check out the Masada excavations in the 70s, and he claims that he is not allowed to see it, that there's some sort of weird cover-up going on, and that he claims to later meet an, a, an archaeologist who says he smuggled one of the scrolls, that one of the scrolls talks about Jesus being married, or Jesus having a bloodline. That's at least what, uh, you know, what this this story is that this this Australian guy is claiming, and that this archaeologist was able to smuggle out smuggle out the scroll the scroll, and then he fled to Russia. That's at least the story. Now, this Australian radio host wrote a book about this. The book was very popular in the seventies. But there's two really important elements there to remember that I think is really essential. Number one, why would the Jewish government, which are they don't believe in Jesus, why would they cover up the evidence of Jesus being married? Why would they would hide that? In fact. 
you would think Jewish people who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah would have every bit of motivation to expose that. You, They would want that scroll to be authenticated and to be made public as soon as possible so that the Jewish people in Israel could say, you see, Jesus was married. He's not who the Catholics or the Christians say he is. And they could potentially use this as a way to undermine the the accounts of the New Testament. They could use this to potentially undermine the the narrative of what we understand who Jesus was and potentially undermine Christianity, maybe even potentially undermine the belief that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Like the Jewish government who is leading the Masada excavation has all the has all the the motivation in the world to expose this and authenticate it. Why would there be some sort of cover up. It just, it's illogical again. And to claim that you met this guy who smuggled this one scroll out and took it to Russia is simply odd. The other thing is that this radio host in Australia has been asked multiple times for evidence. Like, can you show us any evidence for this? And he's like, no, like he basically just says, I know there's a cover up. And so the reality is this, there's no evidence that Jesus was ever married. There's no evidence that this supposed Jesus scroll even exists. Um, the only scroll or fragment ever found has proven to be a forgery. And that's been well-documented by scholars. Um, there's no evidence whatsoever. So I just can't help but feel like maybe this guy, maybe this guy's just making it up. Listen, there's no evidence that Jesus was ever married. There's no evidence that he ever had any kids. There's no evidence that he moved to England or France. These are all just made up things. And that's the reality. But here's what people do. People demand that you prove that it didn't happen. Like in the world of epistemology and, and logic, we call this an argument from ignorance or an argument from absence or an argument from silence. Like that's, that's, this is a logical fallacy. It's an erroneous way to argue. Like it would be the same as me saying, hey, Abraham Lincoln was a Martian. If today I tell you that Abraham Lincoln was a Martian, you would say, well, I don't believe that. And I'd say, well, show me the evidence that he wasn't. And you would say, well, I don't have any evidence that he wasn't a Martian, but there's no evidence that he was a Martian. It doesn't seem logical that he was a Martian. Why do you believe that? Well, I until you prove that well, he wasn't a Martian, I believe he was a three-eyed Martian. You would you would think I was absurd, right? Th that's the same way that like, people claiming that Jesus was married, and you go, there's no evidence of it, and they say, well, show me the evidence he wasn't married. Uh, but that that's a logical fallacy. That's a that's logically erroneous. That's a flawed way to argue. It's a logical fallacy. It's not a respectable way to argue. It's intellectually dishonest. Right? Or let's say, let's say there's a guy named Billy, right? And Billy comes home one day from work in the evening, you know, and he he pulls into his driveway, and his neighbor comes up to him, and his neighbor says, "Hey, Billy, your wife's having an affair." And and Billy goes, "Oh my gosh, how, how do you know?" He goes, "Well, you know, I I just think she's having an affair." And Billy goes, "Would well, you have any evidence?" And the and the neighbor goes. Well, no, I don't have any proof of that, but I think it's because it's a cover-up. She covered it up. So, of course, there's no evidence. It was a cover-up. And you, and, and then Billy goes, well, I mean, do you, but do you have anything that might point to the fact that she does, that she's having an affair? I don't want to, like, I don't want to make that assumption. He goes, well, do you have any evidence that she's not having an affair? And Billy goes, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. Neighbors will see. Until you prove that she's not having an affair, she, you have to assume she's having an affair. And Billy walks in his house and sees his wife. He goes, you're having an affair. And his wife goes, no, I'm not. He goes, well, my, the neighbor says you were. He goes, but, but does, does he have any evidence? No, but give me the evidence that you weren't having an affair. And the wife would go, um, I don't, um what do you mean? Like, how are you going to make an assumption with no evidence and demand me to prove that it didn't happen? I need to show you evidence that I didn't have an affair. Like, th that would be an absurd way to approach your marriage. Anyone married? No, that's not the way to approach a marriage, right? To make a grand assumption, 
you have to have evidence, right? If there's no evidence that Billy's wife has ever had an affair and there's nothing in Billy's past that ever led him to believe she's having an affair, well, for him to make an assumption that she's having an affair based on the erroneous claim of his neighbor is simply silly. It's asinine. It's intellectually dishonest. And that's what people do with these sort of attacks. When they attack things like the bloodline of Jesus, the supposed bloodline, the supposed Mary Magdalene being his wife or concubine, or th these stories that are just flat out made up with zero evidence whatsoever. People embrace these, but they're completely illogical. And it's most of the time it's because people are just grasping for straws. They're looking for anything to, to discredit the New Testament. There are people who just don't want to believe in the God of the Bible, and they'll look for reasons to discredit the Bible, even if those reasons are absolutely illogical, even if they are arguing with logical fallacies. Listen, if you're going to believe that, that Jesus uh, was married and he had kids, in order to be consistent, you must believe that Abraham Lincoln was a three-eyed Martian. Like, if you refuse to believe that Abraham Lincoln was a three-eyed Martian, but you choose to embrace and believe that Jesus was married, quite frankly, my friend, you're simply being an inconsistent hypocrite. It's inconsistent, and it's a flawed way to debate or argue. If anyone tells you Jesus was married, you can just tell them, you're right. And Abraham Lincoln was a three-eyed Martian. I bet that'll be a fun conversation to be a part of, right? <laughs> hey, listen, Dan Brown, the, the novelist of the story, The Da Vinci Code, you know, I never met the guy. I know very little about him. I know that he's a, a great writer and his, his novel turned into a blockbuster film. Hey, good for him. But I think it's important for us to remember it was a work of fiction. It was a novel. And there is zero historical basis for anything in there. There is no historical basis for anything whatsoever that Dan Brown asserts. And all of the historical evidence leads us to the logical understanding that Jesus was not married. He never had any kids. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope this has been helpful and insightful. If you have a question about anything I said in this episode, feel free to shoot me an email. Or if you have a question or a topic that's maybe completely unrelated to this episode that you want me to cover in a future episode of the podcast, I'd love to also hear from you. Feel free to shoot me an email. The address is heyortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. Reminder, check out my other podcast, the Student Ministry Podcast at studentministrypodcast.com. Also, remember... Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. It's the only way to guarantee you never miss a single episode. Because when you're subscribed, every episode gets delivered directly to your device. If you'd like to connect with me personally, the best place to do that is on Twitter. My handle is at Kenneth Ortiz. That's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-O-R-T-I-Z. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us. <laughs>